Hello, and welcome to episode 65 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Podcast, which features over 100 conversations with various people from around the tennis world, and one in particular proved prescient, I guess. Um, Carl, at the New York Open several months ago, interviewed a... At that point, completely unknown doubles team of a couple Germans, Kevin Kravitz and Andy Mies, who, did they win the New York Open? They did. I talked to them just before the final. Okay, so so at the time, we might have made a joke about how talking to you was sort of a good luck charm. It gave them the extra uh, motivation or maybe analytical insight to go and win the final of that tournament. Since then, the New York Open has been pushed down at their career highlights list. They won the French Open. So, I mean, at this point, Carl, I know that before that tournament you barely knew who they were. I certainly didn't know anything about those players except for a vague awareness that Kevin Kravitz was a challenger player. Uh, Having seen them in New York and talking to them, I mean, did you think there was any chance of something like this happening? Any chance, sure. And as you said, it was prescient. I mean, I didn't say it on the episode, but it was obvious they were going to go win the next Grand Slam title. <laughs> I, on I a mean, totally different surface. I, I am aware of the susceptibility of being influenced unduly by a match you see live and then even more so by meeting people. And even so, I'm very susceptible. So I saw them playing pretty good doubles teams in the New York Open. It wasn't a bad draw. And thinking, wow, these guys could really do something. I think mainly it just shows how even that field is. I mean, the team they played was also unseated, the team they played in the final at the French Open. And there's so many guys who individually could win major titles and so many conceivable pairs. Uh, I just think it's cool that these two found a way to stick together because when I recorded that episode, one of the themes was just how hard it was for them to even play tournaments together given their ranking and that one of them had a singles ambition. So, uh, you know, in in team sports where you're getting paid a fixed salary, you can stick together even when you're not quite coming together for years and the GM might get paid for years. And here, players really need to figure it out quickly because they can barely afford to stay on tour. So cool to see these two uh, make make it count and make it pay. Yeah, they should have an easier time sticking together and staying at the top level of the tour for at least the next 12 months. Uh, and like you say, even even in the intervening few months since the New York Open, like I know you've been following them as well. I've been following them more than I would otherwise. They, ha- they haven't been able to play together, even just these last three months. I mean, they, they've played sometimes, but it is a week-in, week-out decision to see if they can make it happen, to see if Kevin Kravitz can make it work with his, his singles plans. So... They might have been a little bit more of a unit than some of the other teams, but certainly less of a unit than the the, the standard big names in the sport, like the Bryans and Cabal Farah and teams like that. So really big achievement for them, super cool. And, and listeners, if you have not gone back and listened to that episode of the 30 Love podcast, I, I think at this point it's mandatory listening to do that. Um, so the... As big as the men's doubles final was, it wasn't the only event this past weekend. We also had some women's and men's singles finals. And, of course, we'll get to the men's final and talk about Rafael Nadal and his his 12 Roland Garros titles and Dominic Thiem and his triumphant win of one set over 
Rafael Nadal at the French Open. But I want to start on the women's side, where our titleist this year, first-time Grand Slam titleist, first-time Grand Slam finalist, pretty shocking clay court result here. Congratulations to Ashley Barty. And Carl, you've been a Barty fan for a while, right? We, but we didn't see this coming on clay, did we? No, she hadn't accomplished all that much on clay. She apparently had also said something like every day on clay is a day closer to grass, which was requoted a lot in the last few days. So yeah, not, not the major we would have expected her breakthrough to come. We didn't, in fairness, that when people are quoting, quoting her saying that it, it, it does sound negative, but it is also an, a, a fact. So it's, it's not that bad. I don't think. Uh, so, She's got this game style that's unusually grass-specific these days. She comes to the net a lot. Uh, she's got a great backhand slice, good good serve for a faster surface. Uh, I think we talked about this on one of our other, one of our last two podcasts that the, the WTA. I mean, the WTA has thrown out the script for a lot of things lately. But with Johanna Conta in the semis, with some uh, some other big hitters like Amanda Anisimova reaching the semis scoring upsets like over Simona Halep, the standard clay court script hasn't really applied, and that certainly has been true of Ashley Barty. But we always have to ask, like, are we missing something here? Is, is there some reason that a game like Ash Barty's should be successful, that maybe we, we should have given her more credit as having the potential to break out on a slower surface? Yeah, I, I'm still a little surprised. One thing that really struck me with her game and clay is that she has a pretty big setup for her forehand, and her forehand is her weapon when she's not at the net. And she did seem to have a lot of time to set up for it. And then once once she's setting up for it from anywhere on the court, she could hit it to anywhere on the court with a lot of speed. So um Maybe just not not being rushed on that shot and and being able to hit forehands from positions that you wouldn't be able to on other surfaces gave her something of a of a clay edge. And you know, I, I also think coming to net on clay judiciously is is a very smart tactic, very effective tactic. I mean, of course, if you say judiciously, it's by definition going to be smart and effective. But I what I mean specifically is that so many players play so far back that you can get a lot out of a drop volley or an angled volley on clay in a way that could be more difficult on other surfaces, even faster ones. So I, I think she showed the utility of that, um, as did you know men's players. I mean, Rafa does it well. Federer got a lot out of it until playing Rafa. So it, it, it definitely can be uh, conducive to good net play um, for the players who, who set it up well. And... Yeah, still kind of baffled, but she also was playing a lot of players who also probably weren't playing on their favorite surface kind of late in the tournament, so I'm sure that helped as well. Yeah, and and I don't like to make too big of a deal out of this for various reasons, but she had a very easy draw. Uh, I think she only played, is this right, she only played one seeded player, and that was Madison Keys, uh, which is, is pretty remarkable. I mean, and it... The reason I don't like to make too big a deal out of it, especially in the WTA these days, is that there's there's so much depth that 
I'm not sure that Von Drusheva and Amanda Anisimova are easier opponents than Madison Keys or any number of seated players. So it's, it's tough to pinpoint exactly how much of an advantage that is. But compared to past years when someone might have to run the gauntlet of Serena, Azarenka, Lina, Roberta Vinci on clay, like, it, 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 it's a different ballgame. So whoever won this, I mean, I think this was clear from the moment Simona Halep was knocked out. Whoever won this was going to be a surprise. They were going to benefit from a draw that opened up quite a bit pretty early. Uh, so that is a factor. I mean, I, I don't think we can, we're quite ready to appoint Ash Barty as like the future of women's tennis on clay. Uh, as entertaining as that might be. But... Yeah, and you're right. Only only Madison Keys, Only a seated opponent. Yeah, that's... Uh, even with the open draw, that's always surprising to see. Um, who do you, who impressed you more in this tournament? Uh, of our, I think our two big breakthrough names were Anisimova and Marketa Mondrosheva, the, the finalists. Did one of them really stand out as a player to watch going forward? I mean, I think I continue to back Anisimova, even though Andrusova went around past her into the final. And I guess the the reasons are they both lost to Barty, and Anisimova put up a much bigger fight, including coming back from five love in the first set of their semifinal to win the set. She also knocked out Halep, who was probably the best player in the draw on the surface, and. She also seems to have a game that will adapt better to the rest of the surfaces. And I, I don't know if this is fair to use in answering your question, but she's also younger by a couple of years, which means if she's doing all this now, she, she on average, we'd expect her to be doing even more in a couple of years when she's the same age Vendrusova is now. Yeah, that's true. And I, I, I'm pretty sure we can say confidently that Anisimova is the best 17-year-old in tennis. Uh, Von Drusheva might be na- now be the highest ranked teenager I'm not sure uh, but there's at least some competition at, at her her age level so so yeah I mean Anisimova and- seems to have the, the better prospect status at least Von Drusheva does have the hardware but I'm not, not sure how far that would go and, and as you say if Von Drusheva is going to build a slam resume it's probably going to involve the French and maybe not other slams. I mean, it, it, it remains to be seen how, how well her game will apply to other surfaces. But Anisimova will be a threat elsewhere, maybe even more of a threat, which is kind of a scary thought given she just made this Roland Garros semis as a 17-year-old. Uh, one topic I want to dig into is there was, there was an article in 538 this past week by, by Amy Lundy titled Rafael Nadal is playing mind games with you and she highlighted a few a few aspects of Nadal's game including uh, running out the clock really making players play it at, at his own pace but also she had some she had some data and some interesting conclusions to make about uh, about his serve tactics and it, it she seemed to interpret the way he chose to go add and wide on some serves as the, keeping one of them in reserve. Like he had sort of a secret weapon that he didn't use that much so that he could use it in big moments. And 
this this is contrary to something you've worked on before, and I think it, it's contrary to the logic that we usually apply when talking about how players use their best shots. Can you can you explain a little bit about what the what the contradiction is here? Yeah, and thinking about it more, like I, I'm not sure her point is wrong, but I think we just need more information. In general, if every point were um, were equally important, we would expect that players are playing optimally tactically if they are winning at the same rate with every option they have. The general idea is if you're winning at a much higher rate when you're serving to the deuce side, uh, excuse me, that wide to the deuce court versus down the tee to the deuce court, then it means that you're leaving some points overall on the table because players, opponents are not um, react, needing to react that much to the better serve because it's, it's not happening often enough. You should keep doing it until its success rate goes down enough that everything equalizes and then your overall success rate will be higher. And that makes sense if every point is created equal. If, in fact, some points are worth much more than others, which is true in tennis, and you really do save that that surprise serve for those points, and your overall win probability is being optimized, even if your number of points won isn't being optimized, then maybe it is the right play. I just, you know, either she didn't have the data or didn't use the data to, to show that. So it's possible that Rafa is too conservative in how often he uses that serve, uh, or it's possible that he really is just going for it only on break points, you know, in tight sets of tight matches, in which case, yeah, maybe it is worth it to, to do it much less often. Yeah, that, that's a, a big question. It would require a pretty intricate study to, to establish, and, and maybe it would, wouldn't even really be, be possible because you could, you could figure out whether players are playing op- optimally, but that would require we all agree on how important every point is. We can do that mathematically, but I'm not sure that players themselves agree with exactly how important various points are. That might mean the players are wrong, but I'm always hesitant to make a statement like that, that my equations are right and players are wrong about things like that. Um, so I mean, Yeah, and... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think you should go first. I've got a follow-up question. <laughs> okay, well, I was just going to say that... Uh, you could also argue that if players really are just using this on big points or are much more likely to use a certain tactic on big points that their opponents would figure it out. But we've also talked recently on the show about the apparent uh, pattern in Caroline Wozniacki's serving that hasn't stopped her from having decent success serving, which suggests that people aren't that aware, whether it's because they're not facing any particular opponent that often or because those points kind of come up irregularly. Whatever the reason, if Wozniacki can get away with her pattern, which comes up uh, much more often potentially and much more regularly, then maybe maybe Rafa doesn't have to worry about opponents guessing. Yeah. Uh, so so what, I'm, what my follow-up question was is, so I, th- I think we agree on the theory that if you've got two choices, the results of those choices, the success rate of, the, of those choices should converge. Maybe, maybe the, the way we're calculating convergence isn't quite right because of win probability. But let's we have to set that aside just because we don't have the numbers to back that up. But this is something where maybe it, we always have to consider the possibility that amateur game and the professional game are different. But is there? It, it feels to me like there are times where you do keep something in reserve. 
uh, like some players play drop shots like that. But I'm just thinking, so for listeners' background, Carl and I went out and played tennis four times last week. And I hadn't played tennis much lately, so it's always interesting to get, get back on court after you know talking about tennis for untold hours and then getting to very sloppily implement this stuff myself. And I've got this decent wide serve in the deuce court that if I use it sparingly, I can spin it out really wide. And I think one serve I even I, I hit, Carl barely got to before he ran into the net between the courts. But it feels to me like I couldn't use that more than maybe a few times a set. Like it would become predictable or so it, it it's not a linear thing where if I used it too much, it would go from 70% to 60%. It feels to me like I've got this 70 or maybe even 80% or better option, but if I used it very often at all, it would rapidly go down to this predictable garbage of 40%. And do you think there's anything, anything to that intuition that it's not linear? Maybe. I mean, I think there's more room, though, than you're thinking. It's funny. I just had this conversation with my more regular tennis partner last night who also usually wins when going out wide in the deuce court but almost never does it. And Or I, instead of but, possibly because of almost never doing it. I mean, I, I think that one of the things about – I think like we maybe overestimate the element of surprise here – some serves are good serves, even if players are somewhat sitting on it because you're taking them out of position. So I have to hit a really good shot to get advantage in the rally because I'm I'm out in the in the doubles alley, um, which also makes me go for a low percentage shot. So you could often win win the point even if I knew the whole thing was coming. I, I think we also have trouble estimating something that is a small advantage repeated frequently. But I think there's got to be an advantage to all the other deuce court serves from pulling your opponent further in the forehand direction because then you, you've opened up the T-serve more and, and you get more out of it. Yeah, that is a tough one to quantify um, because it, it could be a small difference. You're not going to play that many points. It might not even show up in a single match. So so that's a good point. Now, this this feels now like I made a really awkward, sharp segue in going from talking about Ash Barty to talking about Nadal and surf strategies and, and this article. But y- y- you brought it up, put it on our agenda here, because you thought it applied to Barty. And how, how, does this, how does this theory apply to something in Barty's game? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not convinced it does for some of the reasons we already discussed, but I think it would be fascinating to find out. I was really struck when watching her at the French Open about how good her inside and forehand is. And this isn't necessarily something that made her specifically good on clay, although it is part of this idea that if she can run around more forehands on a slower surface, she has more of those moments where she can hit hit it either down the line or out wide. Uh, and, and the opponent has to cover a really big chunk of court on a really hard hit shot that she might not have time to cover. So I think it is it is part of her success and maybe slightly bigger on clay. But in general, it's just a very difficult shot. You're not hitting into a very big area. You're not hitting into a very um, – you don't have a lot of length to work with. So it's, it's easy to hit it into the net, high part of the net, or hit it long or hit it wide. And she seemed really good at it. And again, I, I know I'm susceptible to um, to something that I'm seeing with my own eyes and, and over that. But I, I looked it up 
on the match charting project, which is something Jeff has created to to chart matches, thousands of matches now, including lots of Barty matches. And she hits the inside in forehand way more than the average WTA player. And uh, she wins at a really high rate. Uh, she wins points in which she hits inside in forehands at a really high rate. So it suggests that she's already doing it way more frequently than is typical, but maybe could stand to do it more often. Now, the reason I hesitate to declare that this means she should do it more until her success rate drops to her inside-out forehand rate, it could be there's something different about the ball she takes inside-in than the one she takes inside-out, and it could be that she she, had, she has already sort of optimized for that different mix. But it did have me thinking, like, is she so good at it technically that she should be doing it even more, even though she's doing it way more often than the average WTA player? Would you agree that your footwork has to be better to execute an inside-in forehand than an inside-out? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's a lot of it is footwork, for sure. So th- that's one thing. I I was focusing a lot watching the, the final, and to a lesser extent, Barty's other matches, is what I've read in the past, it, the, the knock against Barty... When, when people on Twitter are trashing her and saying she's never going to be number one or whatever, who are looking pretty stupid right now, the, the number one thing they criticize is the footwork, that, that she's a little slow, uh, that it's not precise. And with with her big game, you can get away with that. You don't, you don't have to have perfect footwork. You can win a lot of matches, especially on a fast surface, without great footwork. But I didn't see that at all. And maybe maybe what you're pointing out, Carl, is, is a good way of... of reconciling that, that maybe her footwork is okay, it's just not fast enough. So on a slower surface, she has that extra second, so her footwork is is at least adequate or better or more conventional on a clay court when she has an extra second to respond. Uh, maybe we'll see it go back to looking not quite as good on, on a grass court, but that might be an explanation too. If, if she can't quite get her feet set for inside-in forehands and she realizes that she knows she's a little off balance and hits a more conservative inside out forehand instead. So that, that, that might be a situation where, where my nonlinear theory comes, theory comes into play. If, if you try to hit more inside in forehands and you're doing that in when your feet aren't set, then that could get ugly fast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think players, we talk about this with, with net approaches too. We'll say, okay, a player is um, is doing really well when when she is at net, so she should be going to net more often. And then we, we consider, okay, well, the success rate will go down because the opponent will be expecting it more. But it's not just that. It's that she's probably taking all the best opportunities now. So any additional opportunities will be worse uh, just objectively, even putting aside the, the element of surprise. So it, it could be similar on any shot. Yeah, this is something I'd really like to look into. I'm kind of obsessed with with nonlinear explanations for things we assume are, are linear. Um, that might not be terribly productive for tennis analytics because we haven't really established some of the, that some of this stuff is even linear, let alone that we can start questioning the linear assumption. Um but I think keeping in mind the possibility that it's it's nonlinear does help explain some of the situations where we think players are doing are, are making suboptimal choices. And I, like I've said many times before on the podcast, like I always start one of the assumptions I start with is that players and coaches know what they're doing. So if if we come up with numbers that contradict that, then the burden is on us to show that 
that what the players are doing is definitely wrong. We don't just say, we, we've got this study, therefore coaches are stupid or something. Uh, and in situ- I think we've come across a lot of cases like this where players are really successful at the net. We say they should come to the net more, really successful on one shot. They should hit that shot more, that serve more. And, and maybe there is one of these ideas we've thrown out. Maybe, maybe one or more of these are a reason why they don't, these, num- these rates don't converge in the way we'd expect them to. Uh, but lots more work to do to, to pin down any kinds of answers for, for most of these questions. So the, I think the big question with Ash Barty now is if, if the people who predicted that she would win a slam someday, that slam was Wimbledon. I mean, maybe maybe the Australian Open since it's her home tournament. But, I mean, she's, she's a great grass court player. She's a big threat at Wimbledon. Now she's not only a great grass court player, but she's a great grass court player who's on a hot streak and just won her first slam. Uh, is, is she your favorite going into Wimbledon? I'm not sure who else would be, but she's actually been pretty bad at Wimbledon. I, I was really surprised when I checked her record because I had that same impression, and she's been good at other grass tournaments, so it could just be a fluke. But um, she's won two matches in her career at the main draw of Wimbledon last year. That's it. Um, wow. So... I don't know. It's weird. Like she, she's done. She's gone deep at a couple of the of the warm ups, and she also hasn't played that many Wimbledon's in part because of her absence from the game for a while, and then her ranking being low and not qualifying. But you know, not qualifying isn't such a great sign either for supposed grass great. So, I'm I'm cautious. Yeah, it it would be pretty shocking if if a player managed to win Roland Garros with very little previous success at the tournament or on the surface and then went on to win Wimbledon with very little success on the surface. Uh, so if, if it's not, I mean, I did, yeah, I, I, those are all good points. It's so we have to be really careful making her the favorite, despite the fact that when I am able to update, update my ELO ratings, she's going to be head and shoulders above the crowd. I mean, she was already number one in ELO. I'm not sure about how she stacked up in, in the grass-specific numbers. But she's going to be even further ahead of the pack. Um, but if if she's not the favorite, who is? Well, Kvitova is, is still on a very strong season and has won Wimbledon twice, so she'd be pretty high up there for me. Kerber has won the title and, and made another final. Uh, you know, Serena, I'm not sure exactly where her level is, but she's won a lot of Wimbledons. You know, they'd they'd be the kind of obvious ones. And then Kanta coming off the semifinal here and a semifinal at a previous Wimbledon, plus Pliskova having a big game, I guess would be other contenders. Yeah, that's a pretty formidable list. I would say Barty has probably more of a, a challenge ahead of her to get through a couple of those names than she did to Get where to get to the title at Roland Garros. I mean, do you think Madison Keys? Well, we have no idea if the yeah Keys is a threat, but the draw could open up just as much or more at Wimbledon, so I wouldn't assume much. Yeah, that's that is always true. I guess one nice thing for for Barty now is even though Elo appointed her number one some time ago, she came into Roland Garros as number eight. Is that right? Was she the eighth seed? Yep. So now I think she's in the top four, or maybe she's even number two, but she's definitely def- definitely top four. That protects her from 
more of these other players. I mean, not not all of them are have particularly high rankings at this point. So, I mean, she I I think she could face Serena in the fourth round. I guess it would be since I'm not sure what the the Wimbledon formula is going to do for Serena's seeding. So that maybe that's not a great example, but uh, but my point is that I mean having this Grand Slam on her point total means she's protected from some of these names maybe one or two rounds longer than she would have been otherwise. Uh, and that gives the rest of the field a chance to score the upsets <laughs> that you point out they probably will. Um, so longer-term forecasting. I, I like to do this. We've done this a lot the last couple of years with all these new names uh, breaking into the Grand Slam club on the women's side. So Ash Barty, she's 23. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So she's 23. Maybe we should view her as a year or two younger developmentally because she did take the time off. I'd just like to acknowledge, I'm sure listeners, I'm sure all of you know that Ash Barty took time off to play cricket. It's a great story because every single reporter on the planet is writing something about it this week or has already. We're not going to talk about it, but it is something worth considering here that maybe she has a little less developmental time playing tennis, so maybe we should treat her a little differently than a typical 23-year-old. Um, so she's 23 or something like that. Um, what do you think her career slam total is? Three. Three sounds good. I forgot to pre-register my own number, but do you think that sh- that the other two would come at Wimbledon? <laughs> well, again, I'm I'm not sure about Wimbledon. I think, I, yeah, I, not necessarily. No, I mean, I think the Australian Open is definitely in the running. U.S. Open, for that matter, she's had some good results there. No, I think I think you could make a case for any of them, and also for her to struggle at any of them. So, it, it sounds like you're viewing this as I'm not. I don't want to call it a fluke slam, but th- this is not a breakthrough. We have a new name who's going to be a perennial top three player in Ash Barty, at, the, at least so far. Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we've we had a bunch of players who have hovered around and in, in the top three for the last five or so years, and almost nobody who's gone past three titles. So I'm just being very cautious about anyone getting above a number around three or four because of, of that being... Um, a barrier we just haven't seen broken much lately. Oh, that's true. I mean, it will be interesting to see how that changes when when Serena retires. Because one of the big barriers to getting past three or four slams for the last decade or more has been Serena. Uh, you can't win that many slams when she's winning so many. Uh, but I think even if she does win a couple more, the, the current, let's say, Barty's generation, they're not going to have that kind of obstacle in their path as often. Uh, and if they do, it'll be some new player. So that will be someone who, who breaks past the three or four slam threshold. Yeah, I mean, Serena hasn't won one in a while, and we still haven't seen anyone really uh, break break through. And, you know, we've just we've had so many first-time winners. So, I mean, I expect it to change at some point. I expect this to be cyclical, but the safest prediction is always to predict some some version of the status quo until proven otherwise. Would you say the same for Osaka? She's going to top out at three or four? <laughs> well, I mean, she's at two at a younger age. So uh, I don't remember what I predicted when she won the Australian Open, if we did this then. And uh, I guess whatever I predicted should be a little bit lower now because she lost in the third round here. But it, it would make sense that whatever I predict for Barty should be at least a couple higher for Osaka. 
No, that's true. Yeah, I don't think the result here should make too much of an impact since we didn't expect her to, to do much on clay. Maybe if you had a if you had a career forecast of five slams, it might now have gone down to four point nine nine two or something. Maybe that's a little low. Her probability of winning was higher than that, but not a big one. So these other two names that are our breakthrough characters at this tournament is Vondrosheva and Anisimova. Vondrosheva, like we said, she's she's nineteen, I think. So big future ahead of her, but maybe not as much potential on other surfaces. Um, do you think she's going to win a slam eventually? Yeah, uh, I'll give her two. Two slams. Do you think that she'll turn out to be a, a threat by which, let, let's just define threat as will reach a semifinal at a non-clay slam? Uh, didn't, I mean, she had a pretty good spring on hard courts, right? I don't remember the details. I know she beat Simona Halep in, was it either Indian Wells or Miami? I forget which one. It's traumatic, so I blocked it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she went to the quarters at Indian Wells and Miami, and she was starting from the round of 128 because she didn't have a seed. So a lot of wins on hard courts, uh, over seeds at those tournaments, and uh, pretty pretty impressive development on that surface away from clay. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see her as just a clay threat. Yeah, it, I mean... It, she is one of the more interesting players, both in terms of her, her future potential, but also just to watch. I mean, there, there's so many big hitters among the, the teams these days, and she does not fit that mold at all. Uh, so s- what do you think her peak rank will be? Two. And there have been lots of... Cause, oh, that, right, because Barty's number two right now. You sent me a link to a tweet with a list of all the... WT number twos. I think there's there's been a lot, uh, but yeah, that would be interesting. I could see her at number two. Um, I feel like I might be a little bit more conservative at this point, but I mean, definitely top five. I think she's no question a top five player in probably not too long from now. Uh, same questions for Enesimova. How many slams do you think she's going to rack up? Okay, do you have your answers? Yeah, I've got my answers. Okay, uh, I'll give her give her she will earn (laughs) by my prediction um three slam titles yeah i was gonna say three and also point out that i think your gifting is how kevin kravitz and andy meese got their role (laughs) well she hasn't been on the show yet four if she comes on the show four if she comes on the show exactly good you took the joke out of my mouth um so peak rank and i've got one too I mean, very risky to say one, but say one. Yeah, I was I was gonna say two. It, it's tempting to say one, but you know, weighted averages and all that. Um, I, yeah, it, it's really tough to say one unless someone is. Um, well, I mean, I, would we say one as a peak rank for Ash Barty since she's number two right now? Yeah, I mean, it would be. It probably would be a bad bet to say she won't reach number one. I mean, she's just behind Osaka, and Osaka's gonna have. Um, well, I guess mainly she's going to have the U.S. Open points falling off this year. Um, but I don't think Barty has that much falling off the rest of the year either. So, um, yeah, I think I think with Barty this close, it's a really good chance. 
Yeah, I, I think so too. And I mean, she's assuming she stays healthy and stays motivated, even if it doesn't happen now, like she'll be around and competitive for some time. So, I mean, it feels a little repetitious to say this, what feels like every week, but so much exciting stuff to watch on the women's side. So many uh, interesting players and uh, there, there are so many, so many women who are uh, making them, making themselves known, making us think about their their future career trajectories every week. That somehow we forgot about Bianca Andreescu in the I don't know month or two that she was out. Not was it maybe two months? I mean, she won Indian Wells coming out of nowhere. She's had a great season. Unfortunately, she she had to pull out of the French Open after winning a really tough match against uh, Marie Bushkova in the first round. So she's she's not back a hundred percent, but She's someone else in this same age range who is a potential future number one and one of one of Carl's three-time Grand Slam winners for if they uh, do a 30-love. Uh, so, yes, a lot of exciting names to watch, and we remain in this unstable-slash-deep-slash-super-entertaining era of uh, women's tennis where really anything could happen. Including, of course, I don't want to forget about this. We could see Arena Sabalenka win the next twenty-two slams in a row. I just, it's, I'm just putting it out there. And if it happens, I want to register my prediction. Yeah, and it's even possible that they'll schedule fifteen next year, so she can do it quickly. Uh, it's also possible they'll start awarding fractional slams. Yeah, I mean, I think as tennis abstract enters more mainstream tennis, like the, the fractional odds of winning slams or adjustments for for slam draws, I think I think fractional slams are the future. Um, okay, so before we say anything more ridiculous than that, let's talk some Nadal. Uh, quick recap: in case somehow you're a tennis fan and don't know this, Nadal. Beat Roger Federer in the semis pretty routinely. He beat Team in the final in four sets. There were a couple really good quality sets, and, and Team managed to win the second set 7-5, but then Rafa ran away with the, the rest of the match. Well, the last two sets were 6-1, 6-1, I think. Uh, so Rafa now has 12 Roland Garros titles. Only, only three players have more total slam titles than Rafa has Roland Garros titles. Let's just start with that. This is well. Wait, four players counting him, right? Right. I said other players. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yep. But whatever it is, it's a tiny number. Um, let Let's start with that. I mean, is there is there any achievement in tennis that's on par with winning twelve Roland Garros titles? Whew. Um. I really. I can think of things that are like more trivia than accomplishment, but I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, the overall uh, slam title count for Margaret Court, the overall open era slam title count for Serena Williams, those are, those are massive, but there are players who are, who are kind of close in the modern era. Um, you know, like I don't think weeks at number one quite does it or consecutive weeks at number one because that's really a different kind of achievement. Uh, you know, winning two calendar year Grand Slams 
incredible, winning two, twice winning four in a row like Serena Williams did up there. But, I mean, just ha- having to – you can do that in two years. This takes at least 12 against so many different players, so many different stages of your career. It's – I think uh, – I think it – I think there isn't anything else. I don't know. What, what would you rank alongside it? Yeah, the only thing that came to mind was, like like you said, the multiple Grand Slams. So the, the Laver winning the, the calendar year Grand Slam twice. Maybe Maybe these days – uh, if if Novak had won this one, so if Novak had two Novak slams, then I would put that up there. I mean, I, th- I think all due respect to Rod Laver, but pulling off multiple consecutive Grand Slams is is a more impressive feat now than it was then. Uh, that would really be eye popping, but it didn't happen. Uh, maybe winning a Golden Slam would be up there, but but we don't have one of those on the men's side. And as you say, like the 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 fact that it it takes a minimum of 12 years to do it. Practically speaking, it's even for, for Rafa, for which practicality isn't really a factor, and it's going to take more than 12 years. So you have to play at this super high level for longer than most people's entire careers last. Uh, yeah, it's outrageous. I think if we tried to quantify it, like, it, it this, would be, this would be the feat that would be more standard deviations from the mean than anything else, even if we set the mean of... Hall of Fame players. Um, it's just, it's just outrageous. I mean, we, we, the players we talk about dominating tournaments, we start talking about that at five wins, and we don't expect them to win one or two more. And then Rafa's gone and, and doubled that at the same time that some of the other best tennis players in history are are competing and often facing him in the late rounds. So yeah, it's it's astonishing. Um, now Dominic Team. Not one of those other all-time greats, at least as yet. But he did make a little bit of progress. So last year he reached the final, lost in straight sets. This year he reached the final, won a set. He has beaten Nadal now four times on clay, but never on on the clay at Roland Garros. Do you think that we could see next year or maybe the year after that team not only winning Roland Garros, but beating Nadal to do it? Yeah, I think we could see it. I didn't give him a 0% chance going into the final. But I also think him winning a set is is a is a weird fluke of clustering of points more than it is a sign of major progress. I think he was about as good last year in the final as he was in this final. He just, like the second set, other than the game team broke, Rafa barely lost a service point. And then the third and fourth sets were worse for team than any of the sets last year in the score. So I I don't think he came any closer this year to winning. It, it wasn't a close match. Now since he, I, I agree, he, he was pretty miserable in the last couple of sets. I mean, there were a few little little sparks that he was, he was playing well again, but Rafa snuffed those out pretty quickly. Team said both before the match and after the match that the scheduling wasn't a big factor. He had all this adrenaline. He, I mean, it's a slam final, so he, he he had a lot to give. But at the same time, you have to you have to assume it was some kind of factor. I mean, he he played his quarterfinal on Thursday instead of Rafa playing on Tuesday. He had to play a, a really tough five setter against Novak Djokovic, split over Friday and Saturday. So he played 
two and a half sets on Saturday when Rafa was resting and then had to come back the next day and, and play the final. Do you think that was a factor in the final score? Maybe a little, maybe a few games. As we've talked about throughout the tournament, if team was good enough to straight set Djokovic, then it would have been easier. He still would have needed to come back Saturday, but not for long. And not that Federer is at the same level on clay as Djokovic, but Nadal showed how it's done and being efficient in his semi. So as usual, some of the, what looks like poor scheduling or unfair scheduling is also a product of just, um, you know, being better to begin with. Well, do you and, think that's fair, though? I mean, I, I, I think you kind of glossed over the gap between Federer on clay and Djokovic on clay. Do you think Nadal would have would have been as efficient if he had to beat Djokovic in the semis? I think the gap between beating Federer as he did and the way team beat Djokovic is bigger than the gap between Djokovic and Federer on clay. Okay. Do you think he would have straight set at Djokovic? Uh... I don't know. I guess I would predict the expected number of sets to be 3.8 or something like that. Could definitely see a straight set. Possible there's a five set. Um, but yeah, just based on clay level, that that would, I think Rafa was better than everyone, no matter the rest. Um, so that's why I'm only attributing a few games in the final to the scheduling. Okay. I mean, and and in in fairness that. My counterfactual of Nadal playing Djokovic in the semi is is off the table. That's not draw luck. That's just fantasy because they were the number one and two seeds. So the the real counterfactual is if Nadal and team had played in the semifinal. But if that's our counterfactual, we can't think about the Nadal team meeting in the final. So it's not it's not a really realistic way to look at that. But but point taken. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think anyone no. I mean, and and I'm speaking very. I'm speaking very confidently with not enough information, which means I guess I'm ready to go on TV and call tennis matches. We, as we've discussed throughout this tournament, we don't really know the effects of rest uh, tangibly. We have a lot of evidence that it helps, but the amount it helps, I don't think either of us really knows. So we're really just taking an educated guess. Yeah, and, and also playing Djokovic is tough. I mean, we, we, commentators have talked a lot over the years about the the effect of, of beating one of the big three and then coming back the next day because players have pretty miserable records when they do that but at the same time team played uh who did team play in the quarterfinals i'm blanking i was just trying to remember that too hold on was that kachanov yes so he had a relatively easy quarter it was that was straight sets he played two and change sets on Friday against Djokovic, and then he played two and a half plus sets against Djokovic on Saturday, which, I mean, among things that regular people do, that's extremely difficult, but among things that top tennis players do on a Friday and Saturday, it's not it's not that unusual. So at, at a clay court Masters, team would play three sets on Thursday, two sets on Friday, three sets on Saturday, and you might compare the amount of time on court or how difficult their opponents were going into a final, but that's what he'd expect to have done going into a Rome final or a Madrid final. So, so maybe, maybe I am making too much of a big deal out of it. Uh, it's just the contrast is so striking that 
team was on court more days, more hours, more time against tough opponents than Nadal. I mean, any way you slice it, there's this big gap that uh, just took Nadal as the favorite and made made it an even bigger mountain to climb. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, some of that's just because Nadal was better to start with, and he didn't really have any struggles for the whole tournament against anybody. So, one topic that we hoped to dig into this in our last our last podcast, we talked about it a little bit uh, on our changeovers when I was too tired to, to continue our tennis matches, but let's dig into it now. You were making the point that that the top players, because the because the margins are so small, and because the top players have to be so well rounded, I think I'm characterizing the argument well, but correct me if I'm if I'm not. Um, because they have to be so well rounded, because they they have to have this variety of skills, the best players are not the best at any particular thing. Like for instance, you you wouldn't say Rafa or even Roger has the best serve in tennis. I mean that that's probably Isner, but. You would not say Isner's the best at tennis because clearly he's not. So there's the, the, there's this gap. And it's obvious with serve, but maybe not as obvious with a backhand. Someone might say Novak Djokovic has the, the best backhand. But do you, think that, do you think that that applies in the case of Rafa Nadal? Is it fair to say that he's the best on clay, but maybe not the best at any particular thing in tennis or even specifically on clay? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think we, we do need to at least we don't need to define it per se, but we should recognize that you would want to define your scope. Like, who are we including here? Um, there, There's probably someone at a at a lower level who has an incredible forehand drop shot or whatever. But because the rest of their game or their movement is not nearly up to par, we don't know their name yet or ever. Um, so, you know, maybe we're talking about the top 100 here. I don't know, maybe the top 50, whatever seems like a reasonable um, threshold of just overall ability. Yeah, just for the uh, sake of our discussion, let's just say the current top 100. So basically yeah. the slam field. Yeah, so, you know, I think Rafa's forehand would be in contention, but I, I, I don't, I'm not positive that it's the best. There are definitely other strong contenders. Uh, so when I think of, like, what is he absolutely the best at, I'd either get really specific, like, hitting forehand winners from over his shoulders um, and then, you know, like jumping up and landing in a celebratory fist bump. Um, Or, you (laughs) know, like, yeah, more seriously, you know, I think he might have the best smash. You you, you tried to measure this and he didn't come out as best. So I'm going to say he's probably doesn't, but I'd I'd consider him in contention there. And then uh, backhand smash, I think, is got to be one of the best, but it's so rare that it would probably be impossible to anoint anyone quantitatively. But yeah, I mean, mostly I just think of him as being both well above average in almost everything and also incredible at putting it all together. Yeah, I think that's the that's the key to this whole discussion is that tennis skills are irrelevant in a vacuum. I mean, they might be interesting to, to study and, and talk about but uh, but for instance people love talking about how great Rafa is at the net and I'm not disagreeing Rafa's phenomenal at net but I don't think you'd ever say he's the best volleyer in men's tennis uh, 
but his stats might say, at least in a limited sample, he is because he he chooses very wisely when he comes forward. Um, that combined with being very good, he might be, let's say he's like 80th percentile in terms of creating net opportunities and 80th percentile in terms of converting those net opportunities. Combine those two and he's, well, if you do the math, he's one of the top four um, he's one of the top four guys in the top 100 if, if you believe my 80 percentile numbers but that means it doesn't it, you don't have to combine really outlandish numbers to get an outlandish combined number I mean the, the, the individual numbers don't have to be that great um, one thing that really sticks in my mind is is a, a Federer quote in a press conference from years ago I mean it might be more than 10 years ago right? at the US Open he was playing Isner maybe in the third round or something and I think it was maybe his, one of the first times he played Isner, and one of the reporters asked him if he'd seen the Isner serve, if he thought Isner had the best serve in the game, and he kind of ducked it and said, well, I don't know, I think my serve's pretty effective too. And I don't think Roger would tell you his serve as, uh, as an independent element is better than the Isner serve, but if you look at serve points one adjusted for opponent, then... I mean, Fed's up there. I mean, he's right to put himself in the conversation, but it's not because his serve is better. It's because he backs it up with uh, a, a better range of shots. Um, so, I mean, it, it, is the way out of this conversation to just say that that individual shots don't really matter? I mean, it, it's it's the context that makes. I it wouldn't matter. go that far. I mean, I think if you're above average at every individual shot, then you're you should be a top five or top ten player. Because uh, there's no weakness to target because, um, you know, every little bit of margin helps and you should have margin over every average player at, at every shot on average. Um, but I think that, for instance, if, if your best competitive advantage is on your forehand and you're able to work the game to get more forehands, which is something you could say about Rafa, uh, despite his very effective backhand, I definitely put you know, among the top, let's say, 20% or so, uh, then that that is getting, that you know, that is really using um, that advantage to much greater effect and, um, and seems incredibly important. So if, if we start from this, this argument that the top players are the top players because they're they're above average, but not at the very top of the list in a whole slew of different categories. Are there any exceptions to that where there are players who are great and legitimately are the best at some individual skill? Uh, I think it's possible Djokovic has the best backhand, but I wouldn't even assign a 50% chance to it just because of, there's so many other really good backhands. Um. I think we neither of us wants to call Isner great, maybe for aesthetic reasons, but he's been in the top ten enough that that maybe he would qualify. Uh, yeah, I guess okay. I, I was thinking of defining great very narrowly, like uh, of of the players. Who, let's say I guess this is too limited for the men right now, but let let's say someone who's I guess top top three at some point, just for the sake of argument. I was going to say someone who's a number one player, but that's too narrow for the men. But let's say someone who's peaked at three. So, I mean, so, someone who has, someone who's a slam contender, good all-around game. <laughs> I'm biasing the question already. But, um, <laughs> but 
someone who isn't someone who's known for being great, not for being a great server like Isner is, but who is who, who does have a, a, a top skill. So I mean, the Djokovic backhands in the conversation. I agree that there's pro- if you quantify it, probably somebody comes out better. Maybe it's Vavrinka on the backhand, but. The, the name that came up when we talked about it before was was Serena Williams. Uh, obviously, she meets the criteria for great, however we're defining that, and she's at the very least in the conversation for the best serve in women's tennis. I mean, that 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 seems like a good example of what I'm talking about, don't you think? Yeah, she's she's a great example. I there was an article in the New York Times last year that one of the New York Times writers recirculated yesterday that pulled a whole lot of people in and around women's tennis about the best shots in the game. And and I think Serena serve was number one. I'm pretty sure it was. And there were also a lot of um, a lot of categories where Barty ranked high, which maybe demonstrates the point because she wasn't one of the best players last year, but she did have some weapons that were near the top. It, it also showed maybe some of what we're kind of pushing back against because on the one hand a lot of the a lot of the rankings were the very top players at the time so there's just a sense of like well we've got to explain somehow how uh, Wozniacki is near the top of the rankings so we're going to put her near the top in a lot of these categories uh, instead of you know an interesting name at number 27 so I guess you know Barty was the exception and then I think there were also a lot of players who were there by reputation because I'm I'm I haven't really looked at the stats, but I'm guessing part of Serena's decline from like dominance to sort of number 10 level in the last year or so has had something to do with serve. But um, often the reputation can kind of lag behind the reality, which explains a lot of baseball's Golden Glove Awards, Gold Glove Awards. Yeah. Yeah, and Barty's an interesting example that opens up other angles of this whole conversation in that the things that Barty is good at are not super common skills these days. Like if if suddenly let let's say the second coming of Pat Rafter arrived and raced into the top three, like he would almost definitely be the best servant volleyer in the game because there's almost no competition for best servant volleyer. And it's not that extreme for Barty, but how many women in the top one hundred have offensive slices that they win points with. I mean, maybe there's 10 who can do it, and maybe there's five who regularly do it, and I think Barty's the only one in the top 10. I guess Pliskova hits a number of them, but Barty's the one who's really known for it. But that's not so much because Barty's winning because she has this epic shot like a Djokovic backhand, but it's just because she wins using skills that other people don't even really consider. Um, so we're, we're rapidly nearing the one hour mark and Carl, I know we need to keep this one, this one tight for your schedule. Uh, any final closing thoughts on Roland Garros? Uh, I did want to quickly note some of the sort of advanced stats on the, on the French open site, uh, sponsored by Infosys. I'm a big fan of new stats in tennis. I don't think this one has been fully considered because it's it's ranking the various match stats by influence on the match, which is which is a very creative idea and you know draws your eye to the stat that is supposedly most important. But the actual results in ranking the stats don't make a lot of sense to me. Like supposedly net points one had a quarter of the influence of the outcome of the women's final, 
And win percentage on first serve had 5%, but there were way, way, way more points played on first serve than at the net. And the gap was about as big between the players. So uh, it would be great if they released the formula for how they determine it and if we could kind of take a stab at understanding it and maybe improving it. But on, when when sites don't do that, it looks more like marketing than like analytics. That is a, a very diplomatic way of putting it, that it looks more like marketing than analytics. Go ahead. I might phrase it a bit stronger. Uh, well, I mean, you even you even did what they wanted. You identified the the producer of the stats. Uh, like every every one of these pages has Infosys an Infosys logo on it, an Infosys in the page title. It's the Infosys Match Center, um, and yeah, they don't they're not engaging with any kind of analytics community. They don't publish any formulas. I mean, we saw this with IBM for years, and it's still going on. Like. It's a PR exercise for them. Like all this tennis stuff is just, just a way of hooking people's eyes and selling more Watson systems to hospitals or whatever they're doing. Um, you know, I, I've become very cynical about this largely because of IBM, and I, I 100% agree with you that new stats are is great to see it. The Roland Garros website has way more information, just raw data, than it did last year, so that's fantastic and. I guess in, in some, some way or other we have Infosys to thank for that. But, I mean, it, it is a marketing exercise. And I don't think we're going to see somebody from Infosys like really get involved with the tennis analytics community and help us figure out how to, how to quantify how important net points really were for Ashley Barty in the final. So uh, maybe next year Roland Garros will have a new sponsor who will have some new made-up stats that we won't be able to really interpret very well. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm very cynical about it. I think I have good reason for doing so, but um, but that seems to be a, a standard aspect of of the slams and the fact that these uh, these I don't know analytics consulting firms really want to associate their names with these very high profile events that are are, are well known to the uh, the wealthy people and high ranking officers of organizations that are going to hand them multi-million dollar contracts. It's not about tennis stats except for how much we're looking at them and a small community of other people are looking at them. Just think, though, they might get more PR and better marketing if the stats were good. That's the part I don't get. Well, you know, the you important influence of this show would be pos more positive. I do think that the influence of ah. this show is why... Show me the formula. So... That's a good point. The, the, well, it's it's no more scientific than anything Infosys does, but the, the what we're studying is much less scientific. So I think it's it's in keeping with that. Uh, I think we've gone from navel gazing to meta navel gazing, so we should probably call it right there. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Carl. As always, thanks for co-hosting a top five percentile navel gazing podcast with me. Absolutely. If you combine the navel gazing with the bad puns, I think we might be number one. Not number one in any of the individual categories, but combine navel gazing and bad puns, the best tennis podcast there is. Um, watch out other navel gazing bad pun podcasts. So thank you, Carl. Thank you, listeners. Um, enjoy the grass court season kicking off this week. I'm assuming we'll be back next week with some talk about grass. 
maybe a revised Wimbledon forecast. We didn't even talk about Wimbledon men, so that'll be at the top of the list uh, next week. So we will see you then. Thanks for listening.